Linda Blair in Summer of Fear. A terrifying journey into witchcraft and the occult. The summer began like any other until the arrival of Julia. Rachel, you remember Julia? Hi, Julia. Julia is a witch. She is some kind of a witch. Was it jealousy or was there more? Bill, out of your head. You're not my cousin, Julia. Who are you? Using a wax figure, can one person control another person's mind? Alone, Rachel struggles to prove her nightmare a reality. <laughs> a summer of fear. A frightening encounter with the supernatural. A Summer of Fear. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of Craven Craven, the podcast devoted to all things Wes Craven. My name is Patrick Bromley, joined, as always, by my co-host, Heather Wixon. Hey, Heather. Hello. I think it's appropriate that we are, we are wrapping up. I guess it's nice that this sort of worked out time-wise because we're wrapping up the summer. We're into fall, and our movie is summer-themed. Summer of Fear we're talking about. Wes Craven's 1978 made-for-TV movie. Uh, we are now entering the Fall of Fear to be followed by the Winter of Fear. Yes. Well, I could have gotten really heady and been like, the winter of our discontent. Yeah, I'm not that I'm not that smart, unfortunately. Yeah. You're the brains either. of this operation. And, uh, you know, I lose that. I use that term loosely, I think. <laughs> Um, this was Wes Craven's kind of first for hire job. Um, this was his first job after moving out to LA and, uh, he moved out there from, from the East coast. He had already made the Hills have eyes and he had made last house on the left. And of course he had made the fireworks woman, which we discussed at some length on our last episode. Um, and this was his first job, uh, you know, being hired by a studio to make a TV movie that ultimately ended up getting a theatrical release in Europe, which is where it was called Summer of Fear. When it aired on TV, it was called Stranger in Our House. Um, but this is based on a Lois Duncan book, unread by me, but you have read it, correct? Sorry, my dog is freaking out, of course. Your dog um, loves Lois Duncan. I get it. He really does love Lois Duncan. I raised him right. Um, yes, actually, I have read the book. Um, I'm actually a really big uh, Lois Duncan fan. I think my favorite of hers is probably uh, Stranger With My Face, um, which came out um, like in the early 80s. And I, for some reason, I, I don't even remember if it was my mom got me into Lois Duncan 
I don't feel like it because I was always stealing her Stephen King books. So I might have just sort of stumbled upon Lois Duncan myself. Um, but yes, I, I, I it's it's interesting because I actually, you know, I, I understand Stranger in Our House works really well as a good TV movie of the week kind of title. Um, but I, you know, sort of appreciate the fact that they use Summer of Fear for the theatrical release uh, just because it is the name of the novel. Right. Um, you know, and it feels a little more appropriate. Also, I think Stranger in the House is kind of a little bit of a spoilery uh, title in, in, in its own way. Yeah, that's um, true. It, once once the end game is revealed, you think back on the title and you're like, oh, wow, it was really uh, it was really all spelled out for me there. Yeah, it really was. It was it was right there. They were handing it to us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I think I think kids today like, you know, I'm going to get on my old lady soapbox. Kids um, today. Kids today. I think they they miss out on the glory that was the the golden age of made for TV movies um, that so many of us older folks grew up with. Um, and I miss that. I kind of wish they would bring that back. Um, I mean, you know, obviously right now things are weird, so there's no real production going on. Um, but I think if there's one sort of trend from TV, I would have loved to have seen sort of make uh, a recovery would be the made for TV movies. Cause they were like events. Like you would plan your entire week around them. Um, I, I think one of my favorite, like sort of made for TV movie actresses during the eighties ended up being Nancy McKeon. Uh, Nancy McKeon was my first childhood crush. Was she really? I thought she was so, you know, obviously Facts of Life, I always thought she was so cool on Facts of Life. Um, but she starred in quite a few made-for-TV movies, um, you know, over, like, throughout the 80s and maybe even into the early 90s as well. Um, and she was really, really great at that. And, of course, Valerie Bertinelli was another one who did a lot of them um, back in the day. Um, but I think there's just sort of a lost art of these little movies that would kind of, you know, They'd, you know, you'd plan your Saturday evenings or even Sunday evenings around them, you know, and it was something you'd sit and watch and actually get to enjoy. And, you know, I mean, now that I think TV's shifted a lot, you know, I don't know if it necessarily makes sense, um, but I miss it. I miss that sort of anticipation of having like a new movie to look forward to every week at home. Um, I mean, I guess that's what we live in these days with streaming. So, again, I don't know how much it makes sense, but uh, yeah, I just think it's like this fun thing that like. Kids today will never understand the joy of like going through the TV guide and be like, "What's the movie of the week this week?" and yeah. finding out and you know, figuring out if, if it's something you should watch with your parents or if maybe you know you should watch it in a different room, you know. Um, but yeah, I it's funny. I actually hadn't seen Summer of Fear the whole way through before this, um, only because years ago I decided to watch it. It was before the Blu-ray came out, and there is a version of it on Amazon Prime that was just like com- almost completely inaudible. And I got through about 20 minutes of it and my TV was cranked all the way up and I still couldn't hear people. And I got so pissed <laughs> that I just turned it off. Um, so I was glad to have this opportunity or this excuse, I guess, uh, to go back and watch it. Cause I actually think it's a lot of fun. Um, it's very weird. It's kind of interesting, the boundaries that they push for, for network television, especially in 78. Um, you know, I, I thought it does some really interesting things. And I think it also very much, uh, adheres to the spirit of Lois Duncan's, you know, original book as well. There are still some like cable channels that are making made for TV movies lifetime, perhaps most famously, Hallmark cranks out Christmas movies all year round. 
Yeah, those are like the movies of the day. Like, yeah, I, almost. I, mean, yeah. I won't even I won't even make fun of them because I'm so impressed by their output during the holidays. Like I know they're every single movie is pretty much the same. Right. And all of their artwork is the same. Just like <laughs> like red and greens are switched. Um, but I can't be mad at it because they the way that they push those things out. I mean, you can't help but be impressed. Netflix seems to be trying to get into that game a little bit too. I got a press release about Netflix's Christmas offerings. And they have quite a few this year. We were just talking before we started recording about all of the Halloween stuff this year. But Netflix has a lot of stuff for the holiday season. And a lot of it seems to be of the sort of Hallmark movie variety. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, at least, again, if we're in this sort of day and age of streaming, at least the streaming services are stepping up. But, yeah, good on Netflix to really sort of embrace the holidays this year. Because, uh, I, like I said, we were talking, like, I've been very happy with their Halloween output so far. Um, and, Freddie, and, you know, anybody listening who might have kids, I think when this goes up, it'll be a few days. And then uh, The Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting comes out from Rachel Talalay, which is her first family feature, um, which is super fun and cute. So, you know, good on them for finding, you know, really good talents to sort of, you know, do these, like, Right. holiday things because right. like you know i don't know last couple of years we weren't getting that so i'm i'm grateful for the the diversion this year um but yeah back to summer fear in terms of um how sort of the movie approaches the book it's pretty spot on i would say except uh for the ending i think the the miniseries gives us a far more definitive ending um that sort of feels a little more satisfying whereas lois duncan's book is a little more mystery um, you know, it, it doesn't really, you know, it kind of still makes uh, Linda Blair's character kind of look a little like she was making everything up. Uh, and it's very more ambiguous in terms of sort of how her family sees the, how the events actually happened and things like that. Um, so I would say, like, I, I, I like the book a lot because, you know, the book, uh, I think the mystery serves the book well. But I think the ending in the mini in this TV movie works better for the for this intent like the intentions and purposes of this story right um um, let me read the uh plot synopsis from imdb really quickly a country family of five takes in cousin julia whose parents recently perished in a car crash julia extends her influence over the family and those around them fooling all except for rachel the teenage girl who knows her cousin is up to no good uh rachel of course played by linda blair in her third consecutive horror outing, I believe, after The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2. And Julia is played by Lee Purcell, an actor that I'm not super familiar with, I don't believe. I know her name. Oh, she was in... Um, She's in Valley Girl, but Valley I don't remember Girl. her. Yeah, I can't remember her from Valley Girl. Yeah, I was trying to think. Cause like, she did a I, ton of seen... like TV in the yeah. 80s yeah she seems like so familiar to me oh man she's in a couple of like high profile movies she's in mr majestic with charles bronson she's in big wednesday the the john millius movie she's in uh stir crazy with oh yes Gene crazy. wilder and richard pryor none of these i've seen so i can't well, i can't say that i've never seen stir crazy no 
Oh my gosh. It's funny. Um, that's like one of Brian's favorite things. Um, when he was a kid were Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor movies. Okay. So we actually watched Stir Crazy a few years ago, which I hadn't seen since I was a kid. Um, it's really fun. You should watch it. It's I good. F- I feel like I just saw that it's getting a Blu-ray release, but maybe I'm confusing it. It's either that or Bustin' Loose. I can't remember which one is getting the Blu-ray release from Kino, <laughs> but one of those two movies is coming out on Blu-ray uh, very soon, but hopefully I will check it out. Um, so this is... Uh, it's interesting because as I was watching it, and I, I had never even heard of this movie until that Blu-ray came out. It was like, what? Wes Craven made this made-for-TV movie in the late 70s with Linda Blair, and it's based on a Lois Duncan book? I, it was completely off my radar. So I was excited when that Blu-ray came out to check it out because it was a Wes Craven movie I had never seen. Um, and as I was watching it, you know, I'm trying to fit it in within his filmography and look at, okay, how does this... How is this a Wes Craven movie? And I came up with a couple of a couple things. Uh, one, it's his first movie to sort of incorporate or embrace the supernatural to yes. say that there's some evil force at work that isn't just humans being as awful as they possibly can be, which was really the thesis of both Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, that it was man's ability for violence and man's propensity for this kind of savagery. Um, And this is leaning more into the supernatural side of it, because Julia, of course, is revealed to be sort of an amateur, budding professional witch late in the film. Um, And so that kind of predicts, you know, the, the supernatural elements that are will pop up in his next few movies really culminating in a nightmare on elm street obviously yeah it's interesting i think also there's sort of the family conflict there um and sort of watching sort of the family kind of come apart a little bit um which i think sort of harkens a little bit to like last house on the left um in terms of krug and his family sort of deconstructing or even if you look at what comes later in in wes's career Um, Because you have sort of this prototypical American family and you just have this one entity that sort of invades it and how quickly it can all start to crumble, um, which is interesting. Um, I'd also say maybe in some ways it ties to the fireworks moment because of sort of these like weird incestuous undertones that happen in this movie, which again, I was like, (laughs) I was like, wow, we are, we are, this is a made for TV movie and we are getting naughty up in here. Well, um, almost from the outset, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe people were a lot looser with like probably cousin you know? on cousin relationships, right? In like, the nineteen seventies, like, yeah, there's like the joke of like kissing cousins, but I'm like, why would you, like, why would you be okay with the fact that your brother has a crush on your cousin? Yeah, like, she's that's... trying to set him up. Like from the outset, she's like, oh, she's pretty cute. Like you're gonna, you might score with her. <laughs> she's trying to hook up her brother with her cut with their cousin yeah which again i mean look i'm from west virginia and even my family would find that taboo <laughs> and you know and that's you know something that we you know supposedly us hillbillies are, are are okay with but i was very uncomfortable and then it's like but it's i love the fact that the line is crossed 
when she starts to seduce the dad. That's when it's like, okay, wait, hold on. Right. It's okay if you want to bang my brother, but now you want to bang my dad? Like, I don't know. He's taken so, by yeah. mom. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like I, but I kind of like I thought it was kind of fun. Like that sounds weird and gross, but like <laughs> it was just like I I don't know. It was just like one of those things. Like because in the book, it's it really is only the brother. Um, I don't remember the dad being really a factor in her seduction. Um, I just kind of remember her being sort of being de- uh, mostly dealing with the brother, and I don't even remember if there was. I don't even remember if there was the boyfriend in the book. It's been a really long time since I read the book, but I don't even think there was a subplot with the boyfriend. Well, the uh, brother the never really gets a chance because the boyfriend steps in so quickly that poor Peter, uh, who's played by Jeff East, who some of you may recognize as teenage Clark Kent from the original 1978 Superman, except here he has curly hair and he's not dubbed by Christopher Reeve. Um, he never really gets he never gets a shot because Mike swoops in right away and uh steals Julia away or vice versa. Yeah, it's uh it, it's interesting cuz like, you know, again, 1978, I always tend to think like, oh, it's got to be a little more prudish and blah blah blah, but I guess maybe things were a little more loosey-goosey back then. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's like some really interesting sexual undertones to this and it, it's funny because they all sort of completely miss Linda Blair's character. Like she's very pious in this. She's very cute. She's very approachable. She's there's, there's no sexual energy to her so much so that when she and Mike share a kiss at the end, it's very chaste and almost jarring to see like, like neither one of them wants to do it. It's almost like watching two people being dared to kiss. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was like the like because I remember like the like my very first kiss ever was like me daring a boy to kiss me, um, and then I was like and then I told him I'd pay him fifty cents if if he did it. <gasps> so, Prostitute. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> like you pay you pay for what, what what you're willing to pay for back then. Um, yeah, no, it was like I remember like this kid that I had a crush on, and it was just like a joke, and I was like, oh, I dare you to kiss me? I was like. You do, you get 50 cents. Mm-hmm. 50 cents is a lot of money back then. Sure. So, you know, um, yeah. But yeah, it was funny. It was like, it was just, there's just no, like, and I think Linda Blair is great in this, but I think in terms of like any sort of sexual, sexuality to this character of Rachel slash Ray, um, like it just does not exist. <laughs> no. Like it's like completely, I mean, it's, it, it's almost like Lee Purcell comes into this movie and completely draws any sort of sexual energy towards Rachel, like, away. I mean, which may be intentional, you know, because of the, the nature of the story. But I was really surprising because, like, she's she's really cute in this. Um, she's really likable, um, but very chaste. And to me, I was like, and at the beginning, like, even when she's with Mike, who's her boyfriend, I just thought it was, like, her friend. And for a minute, I actually thought it was actually her brother. <laughs> which so, wouldn't have stopped them apparently in this yeah. family they're they're yeah. not actually i think by the way i think you got your 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 jeff's mixed up because jeff mccracken plays mike and jeff east plays her brother peter jeff east is what i thought i said playing peter maybe i said oh, jeff I mccracken mike, no sorry jeff east her brother is played young superman ah yes sorry i thought you were talking about mike i apologize no no no, no not at all this damn month 
too many Jeffs, too much incest. Can't keep it all straight. I know it's 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 hard. You got to make like a like a a whole like spreadsheet <laughs> of, of these things. Part of the problem, um, I think, too, with drawing all the sexual energy away, is that this movie also co-stars a young Fran Drescher, who steals the sexual energy away from every other person in the movie because she's such a babe. Isn't she adorable in this? Yes. But I love how you can, like, it's just the voice. Like, you don't even have to see her. You just hear her <laughs> voice, and you're like, oh, my God, it's Fran Drescher. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm glad you brought up kind of like the 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 D, not the D, the deconstruction, the destabilizing of sort of the American nuclear family. Because that yeah. was the other thing that I saw as being sort of a Wes Craven motif that continues in Summer of Fear. Because it's completely about, Hills Have Eyes is about the destruction of this family. Uh, Last House on the Left is, in its way, about the destruction of a family. Um, and this, you know, features this character, Julia, who comes in and, and slowly begins to dismantle this family by turning everyone against each other by seducing the father by uh making you know poor rachel look crazy um and it is about dismantling this very typical nuclear family and for a while you think it's just like a poison ivy situation yeah you get i sort of got like poison ivy meets single white female vibes right like you know where you're, you're seeing Julia come in and she wants to like steal Rachel's life because Rachel has this idyllic life. And you're thinking that Julia, you know, has just lost her parents. She's lost any sort of stability. She has no sort of structure, you know, and you think it's sort of a covetous thing where she just wants to, you know, sort of become Rachel, but no, she just wants to obliterate all of them, which I think is really interesting. I mean, I, the thing is, I think there's things we're gonna have to talk about here that we're, is going to get into spoilers, you know, so if you haven't seen the movie, you know, cause we've been, we haven't really gone into where this all heads right. yet. Um, but I mean, I think there's no way to really talk about it meaningfully without talking about spoilers. So if you're listening and you haven't seen this, go watch it, come back and finish. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot that this movie does with the idea of a concept of identity as well. Um, that's really interesting, which again, I think when you go back and sort of look at this time, you know, I don't know if you could get away with what Julia does in this movie now, but it's fascinating to watch it back then. Yeah. And I might, so I might be projecting something here, but I was reading, I think the IMDb trivia and it talked about how in Lois Duncan's book, Rachel's pet was like a cocker spaniel and she was really close with this dog. And eventually they end up having to put the dog down because of something, you know, because it, gets hurt or it's because it's afraid of Julia. It tries to attack Julia. Um, and it's replaced in the movie with horses because Linda Blair was such a lover of horses and like some, you know, equestrian. And for me, and again, maybe I'm projecting here, uh, my own feelings about people with horses and also looking for connections among Wes Craven's filmography. But for me, once you change it from dogs to horses, you're actually elevating the family's socioeconomic class. Because oh, yeah. middle class people, for the most part, don't own horses. You know, that's a rich person's hobby. It's a rich person's sport, horseback riding. So it makes the family 
kind of wealthy, which to me then becomes interesting because we talked about the class disparity in Last House on the Left. We talked about the class disparity in The Hills Have Eyes. And now there's sort of this class disparity in Summer of Fear because so much is made of, well, Julia's from the Ozarks and they mm -hmm. talk funny there and they don't have the things that we have there. And Julia obviously covets this life uh, this upper middle class to, you know, uh, wealthy lifestyle that she sees her cousins having. Um, and I thought that was interesting that it, that it's yet another connection throughout Wes Craven's filmographies, this idea of classes sort of being pitted against one another. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and you know, also too, because Again, I have family that, you know, my mom comes from the, you know, the Appalachian Mountains, which, you know, again, it's sort of this area that for so long people kind of always looked down on. Um, and the Ozarks are another one because that's sort of like the Midwestern mountain range, if you will, um, you know, where people just they, they just kind of think they're hicks and hillbillies um, and they're up to no good and they're doing all kinds <laughs> of weird stuff there. Um which I guess I didn't realize that was a thing about the Ozarks. Like, I just always thought that was sort of more of Appalachian lore. Um, oh, there's so a whole Netflix show about it. I I guess. I know. I have to catch up. I've heard it's great. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that he does sort of go into this. I mean, obviously the book establishes it. But then, Wes, you know, once again, it sort of explores it here, you know, with Summer of Fear. Um because I do, I do think, you know, by sort of changing certain elements, it does, you know, elevate the status. And I, it's also interesting, too, like, the synopsis is like that he, you know, she goes and lives with this family in the country where clearly this is a, this is a Southern California family, you know. And I, I mean, because, like, one, I think they pretty much shot all the, the, the road stuff on Mulholland Drive. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, ooh, we're taking a ride on Mulholland. <laughs> um, and it looks like they kind of either shot out like somewhere like out in like Valencia or New Hall or Santa Clarita, like that area. Cause there's a lot of like horse, uh, like horse communities out there and just like the, just like communities of horses, like subdivisions of horses living together. Oh God, that would be amazing. I, I wish. think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it should be. Um, but there's like a lot of, there's like a lot of communities of like horseback riding people, people, um, you know, who, teach horseback riding there's also you know people who use you know have to bring in their horses for doing things in movies um i actually worked with a woman who had horses on her property who would regularly you know they'd be used in different movies and stuff like that like her husband was a stunt horseback rider in movies and they would often use their horses for it like he was in like the last movie i think i remember them talking about was like the lone ranger cool yeah so that's it's interesting because i you know it's one of those things you don't really know about till you kind of get out here, I think. Um, so it was just funny for me, like watching like the where they were shooting and stuff, because I was like, oh, this is clearly SoCal. So, you know, to me, like by moving this woman from the Ozarks, although technically she's supposed to be from from the East Coast. Um, right. You know, um, Boston. To, yeah. Like, yeah. She, well. Yeah, because they said she was, you know, she was like, well, you only spent a couple summers in the Ozarks, so why yeah. would you have a, an accent? Which should have been a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little clue right there. Um, there's a stranger in our feckin' house, kid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> say hello to your mother for me. Uh, your mother for me. Um, 
but yeah, so it's it's interesting to me that you'd put like her into this sort of SoCal family because even for me back then and even now, like because obviously statuses have raised a lot in Southern California, you know, in the last four years. Um, but even back then, like just looking at their property, like I, immediately I was like, well, that's definitely like a four million dollar house, you know, just because of like the way I know property right, now. Right. And I'm just like, well, obviously with all this land and you've got that view, I was like, that's at least a $4 million property right there. Um, and back then it was probably like, you know, it was, it was a nice house. So they probably, you know, spent like 200,000 on it. So, you know, but there's definitely sort of an elite status that comes with living in that community. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I don't really know much about where they actually shot everything at. Um, but that would be my guess is be sort of like the new hall, Valencia, Santa Clarita areas uh, that just kind of it seems very much like that so but yeah if you drive out there there's a lot of places where if you kind of just go down the streets you just see horses hanging out in people's yards which is kind of fun wow yeah we've got it all here <laughs> um, and you know the the twist eventually is revealed since we announced that we're talking spoilers is that Julia is not at all who she, she claims to be and is not actually their cousin which I guess makes it okay that Linda Blair was trying to set her brother up or that she's seducing uh, the father. Um, she's actually this stranger who, you know, is trying to... In the house. Right, stranger in the <laughs> house trying to move in on this family. Uh, and do they ever say where the actual cousin is? Uh, I don't remember if they say where the cousin is. I know she's, she might have actually just killed the whole family and okay. for some reason they didn't realize that the cousin had died when they have been able to count a third person in the car i mean maybe if uh oh no it is it is revealed that she uh she did die in the crash with the parents she did okay so maybe yes yeah, so maybe it was just you know everything was so burned that you know they just you know like in speed like they just stopped counting body parts and they're right. just like oh okay just like you know. in speed <laughs> Just like in Speed. Um, but it's interesting to me, like, none of the police there would realize, like, nobody knew who the daughter was. Nobody, right. met, like, met her. Right. Like, there wasn't a single photo of that girl, like, and then the housekeeper's like, oh, I'm actually their daughter. No, I, it's, it's, it's it's a stretch, but I'm I'm still willing to go with it. You know, I just feel like some of the police work could have been a little tidier. So how much does witchcraft play into the Lois Duncan book? Because it almost seems like an unnecessary plot point. It makes it fun. And like I said, it introduces Wes Craven to the world of the supernatural. But you could almost make this just a sort of teen thriller where this girl is yeah. not who she says she is and moves into this house. It, you know, then it's Poison Ivy, basically, where she's seducing the family and trying to break them up and trying to replace... Rachel and it, all that stuff could have happened without the inclusion of witchcraft. And yet witchcraft is what makes it kind of crazy and really fun. Yeah. No, there, there is definitely witchcraft in the book. There is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that definitely is, is a factor in the book. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's interesting too, because um, I recently just watched uh, this movie about sort of the representation of the witch characters. Oh, I watched that Hollywood. too. Yeah, um, and I, it brings up some interesting things. And I, I would say this is sort of a very different take um, on witches than we've gotten before. And I don't really, like, I, I don't know if this was, like, a common thing, because I don't know that I really studied witches all that much as a kid. But, like, I didn't know that you, quote-unquote, couldn't photograph a witch. Yeah, I'd never heard that. 
So that that to me was a little interesting, but that is also sort of a, a thing in the in the book as well. Um, so I like that there's sort of this mythos that sort of really adds like a supernatural element to the character of the witch here um, in a way that just doesn't make her feel like a very threatening human being. Um, well, uh, there's a heightenedness to her. And of course, you know, the, the, the crazy eyes helps. Too. <laughs> Which the movie kind of tips from its opening shot, because as we get the magically exploding car in the opening, yes. we get sort of a superimposition of her face with the crazy eyes, you know, right from the outset, basically. So we're told there's this evil presence, you know, that is perhaps causing this. Um, can I just uh, tangent real quick? That documentary yeah, that that's you're talking right. about, mm-hmm. uh, I found it to be a frustrating documentary because they started talking about movies like Rosemary's Baby, which isn't about witchcraft at all. And Carrie, which isn't about witchcraft at all. And I didn't feel like those movies belonged in a documentary about representation of witchcraft in movies. Yeah, uh, especially when there are so many movies that touch upon witches and witchcraft that they didn't talk about. They skipped a lot. They did, and they kind of glossed over like the last 10 years, which was kind of a bummer for me. Yeah. Um, I, I was okay with the Rosemary's Baby to a degree because... They're specifically uh, Satanists. And then later in the documentary, one of the talking heads say says something to the effect of Satanists... Witch, witches aren't Satanists. Yeah, I think, I, I think that they were sort of posing that as... I'm trying to remember because I, I have notes on it, but I don't have them in front of me because I take I have, I've had to start taking notes on everything I watch now because that's just where my brain is. Because um, you're watching as, as I'm consuming things 100... a day, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but I thought they were sort of posing it as almost like a Wiccan belief, even though they're Satanists, but they had a lot of like Wiccan practices. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm totally missing. But I I agree with you on Carrie. I thought that was a weird choice. Because I was like, well, no, she's she's it's telekinesis, and right. it, that's not even the same. Like, right. I mean, I get it; it's a woman coming into her power, sure. Um, but that's not really the thesis of the documentary itself. No, and they um, didn't but, talk about Summer of Fear. Obviously, they missed one. Perhaps the most important witch movie <laughs> of our time. I was, you know, again as I'm watching it, I'm trying to piece together all of the West Cravenisms and I, I really had Nightmare on Elm Street on the brain because I feel like you could draw kind of a line from Summer of Fear to Nightmare on Elm Street between Linda Blair's kind of final girl character trying to convince her parents that something is wrong and them not believing her. Yeah. Right. Um, and and also in this notion of establishing rules that there's rules for Freddy Krueger and there's rules for the witch in this movie, right? You can't photograph a witch um, being, I think, perhaps the most specific rule that they really get into. There aren't a ton. But the idea of setting up rules for the supernatural force, to me, also kind of predicts what he would do with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was really interesting that, like, you know... Uh, they bring this woman into their, their, into their sort of fold, if you will. And it's like the, I mean, maybe it's cause I'm more of a polite house guest, but I'm like, just sort of the presumption presumptions that this woman would like make into people's lives where she's like, 
I'm going to go start visiting Professor Jarvis, who I've never met, never talked to, but <laughs> I should really spend some time with him because I'm really concerned about it. Or, you know, needing to go to a dance, like, just because they want to get her socialized. Like, I understand, like, the, the dance was a thing in the book, but the book itself was more, like, high school-based. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really... Because they feel a little old. They skew a little older here for me. They seem to, um, yeah. You know, <laughs> but, um, like, it's more... Like the dance was like a school dance as opposed to like a country club dance, which again also yeah. speaks to sort of the elite status of, yeah. of the family in this as well. Um, but yeah, like just it's, I guess when I go and stay with people, like I'm very much like just like put me in a corner somewhere, let me stay out of your way. And, you know, I'm very polite. I, you know, clean up after myself. And this girl is just like, it's all mine now. <laughs> like she's just like, I'm going to wear your clothes yeah i'm gonna take your friends i'm gonna bang your dad like <laughs> i you know just just know people if, if i come to i like that that's you, third not, on the list too yeah, i'm not gonna come and bang your dad so <laughs> that's that's definitely not no you can trust heather us. everyone <laughs> your brother maybe i promise dad. not to bang your dad <laughs> let me come stay with you do we do we have our, our next shirt <laughs> That's a reminder to everyone that uh, if you go to our Twitter at Craven Craven Pod, you can find the link to order your very own uh, directed by Abe Snake T-shirt. Yes, yes, always fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's just really interesting because like, uh, and also I thought it was kind of fun that Linda Blair talked about horses in this because I, in a way it also kind of ties back to The Exorcist because if you remember, right? she really wanted a horse for her birthday, right? So I, now I kind of wonder, was that like Friedkin letting Linda kind of bring her own personality into the role of Reagan a little bit there? Like, because I've never seen the script for The Exorcist, so I don't really know if that was like really a thing. But it's just like, it's such a little toss away moment in that movie. But like now seeing Summer of Fear and kind of knowing how they changed this to horses because of Linda's love for them. I'm like, oh, was that like her getting to kind of add her own little touch into the the dialogue of the exorcist because that's kind of cool yeah. yeah so but yeah i mean it's funny because like i remember being a kid and everybody would always joke like oh i want a pony for my birthday or something like that but like what? did anybody actually really want a pony <laughs> i don't know growing up in the suburbs nobody had ponies that i knew of no no although i will say the high school i went to um there was a house behind our high school that actually had horses which was very odd because it was a very it was a very dense suburban community. We weren't like spread out or anything, and we're in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, but there actually there actually was a house with two horses that was right behind our uh, school property. And you know we're not too far here from somewhere like a suburb like Barrington, where I think kids are given ponies uh, as their birthright. Wow. I think they're just handed horses when they're born. I should have been born in Barrington. Which is weird because babies can't hold horses. I know, right? They're so, very small. Like, why you, yeah, why would you do that? Their tiny hands can't grip the hooves. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. It, I will say, like, I actually, it was, for me, I thought this was a really sort of fun um, take on, I mean, now in retrospect, all these things that we've seen in horror done a ton of, you know, a ton of times. Um, you know, but I think for me, like when you think about like sort of movies of the week back during, you know, this era, era, um, 
era um, <laughs> is very different. Um, but I think, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of really good stuff here. And I think a lot of it does feel very Wes Craven-y. Um, I think the sort of dreamlike aesthetic. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, oh, that's very good for sw- uh, swallowing coffee so fast. Ugh. Excuse me. Oh, trying to trying to get gulp as much coffee as I can before the movies tonight. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of this, like, like visually, it, it also reminded me a lot of the fireworks woman in early on in uh, the last house on the left when you're sort of dealing with with Mary in her like sort of idyllic environment. Mm-hmm. So I do I, I do visually kind of see that through line as well uh, between these different these different projects. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like even though West wasn't like a, you know, a quote unquote name at this point, like how freaking cool is it that Wes Craven was working with Linda Blair, who was coming off of like the, the, the success of the exorcist movies. Um, that's kind of rad. And yeah. it was also released in October, 1978, making it, you know, basically a Halloween movie, which is pretty cool, pretty cool. And perfect timing for us as well. It really is. I would love to say that we planned it that way. But we didn't. <laughs> it we just, didn't. It just, it just, just timed out, out when it did. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, you know, kind of not the last time he would work in this sort of young adult milieu. He returns to teenagers again and again, whether it's in Nightmare on Elm Street or whether it's in Scream. Most famously for me, Deadly Friend has always felt like such a young adult novel of a movie. And yeah. I felt some comparisons between this and Deadly Friend. Yeah, I could see that. I'm actually really excited for when we get to his next TV movie, um, because I've never gotten to see it. And I can't believe I missed a TV movie with Susan Lucci, because I used to love All My Children. So did Erica. We, yes. It comes up once a day in our house. And uh, <laughs> just today, she texted me a picture of invitation to hell and said like, can we watch this this month? And I said, well, I'm going to have to watch it for Craven Craven. So we're going to have to wait. Cause actually I don't know where to find it yet. I haven't uh, looked it on a, It's on Amazon prime. It is. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So maybe we'll watch so, it. I don't know. Maybe I'll I watch it maybe once wa- before. I would say probably watch it sooner than later and take notes only yeah, because right. you never know what's streaming. <laughs> yeah. stuff's going to just disappear. Yeah, exactly. That was my plan. I was going to watch it too. We should do a watch party. Oh, fun. We can just <laughs> talk about Wes Craven working with Erica Kane. Yes, how cool is that? She 100%, by the way, is named after Erica Kane. Her mom denied it for so many years, but I think we finally got her to admit it once. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, because her brother is I'm... named after all my children characters also. Oh, that's 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 crazy. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. The love runs deep in the family <laughs> for all my nice. children. Nice. All my family is really all my family. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to get to uh, next is Deadly Blessing, right? Yes, I believe so. 1981 Deadly Blessing, yeah. Deadly Blessing is the next one. I've only seen once when Scream Factory first put out that Blu-ray. That was one of their very first Blu-rays, I think. And that's the only time I've seen Deadly Blessing, so I'm excited to revisit it in the context of talking about it for this podcast. Yeah, this is actually a blind spot for me. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, I don't think I have that Blu-ray, so I will have to figure, I will have to figure it out. It might be streaming somewhere. Yeah, it's gotta be somewhere. Somewhere I'll have it or I'll just, you know, 
paid exorbitant amount for an old Screen Factory Blu-ray. That would work <laughs> yeah, too. right. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I don't think so because that was like I think like 2013 or 2014. Yeah, it was definitely one of the first. Uh, it was it was before I was at Daily Dead, if I'm not mistaken. Oh wow. So. Yeah, so it was it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So two things. One, it's still in print. You could conceivably buy the Blu-ray. Nice. Or two, it's like rentable on Amazon Prime. Mm. I mean, if I'm going to spend the money, I might as well just own it. I like where you're going with this. Yeah, you know. Because I, I think that's... I think looking at the movies, like... I. Yeah, the, the only ones I don't own are Deadly Blessing, Deadly Friends. Where's Screen Factory's Blu-ray of Deadly Friend? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, right? Who is this? Was, which, what studio was that behind that? Warner Brothers. Oh, that explains it. Yeah, but they're licensing Warner Brothers now, so oh, they, they could are. conceivably get Deadly Friend. Mm, they could. Let's do this, Screen Factory. I know you're listening. They've done so much with, like, Wes Craven and Toby Hooper and John Carpenter. They need to continue and put out Deadly Friend. But yeah, you might as well just finish up the, the, the run of Wes Craven. Right. You know, just just do it right. I mean, although I know, uh, whatchamacallit, they just put out Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, who distributed that? Was that Paramount? Yeah, that's Paramount. Okay, which I picked up for $10 on Amazon. I was Me excited. too. I I have the DVD, but I was like, yeah, I'll skip the Blu-ray. I'll support Vampire in Brooklyn. I'll be that guy. <laughs> I did not own the DVD, so I was not upgrading my Vampire in Brooklyn. It was a first-time purchase for me. Ah, gotcha. Yes, it's one of those. Uh, we used to see Eddie Murphy a lot at our coffee bean out here because uh, we like sort of we were in the valley, and he's like up in like the the the, the hills of like the nice area of like Studio City area. Um, and he, I don't know why, but he would always come down and get coffee, which I'm like, you're Eddie Murphy. You can send somebody, you know? <laughs> um, and I would, I'd like, there's a few times where I was like standing like right next to him and just doing my best not to totally freak out and just blurt out. Oh my God, I love Vampire in Brooklyn. Cause I know it wasn't a great experience for either him or Wes for various reasons, but like, I love Vampire in Brooklyn and I just wanted him to know that. So, but yeah, I was, I, I would stand there and just be like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. Well, I hope when we get to it that you'll share uh, some of the stories about why it was a bad experience, because I don't know those stories. Yeah, I've heard a few from some effects folks and stuff. Um, just a lot of strain between them, you know. Yeah, I don't think that was uncommon for Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Especially at that time when he was not quite on top. Yeah, you know, back when it was okay to make fun of somebody for picking up... Uh, Oh right, it, yeah. Hookers who uh, was it? Was were they a, were they a transvestite or were they? I, I think so. I think it was. Circumstances. A, I think were. the person was trans. Okay, um, you know, which you know, apparently that was a huge punchline back then. Right, <laughs> we're so funny. Um, you know, whatever. Just let him. Just let him do what he wants to do. Is yeah, absolutely. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so let him pick up who he wants. But now he's got like fourteen kids. So good for him. Let him do what he wants to do, unless it's Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We should have ended with two. Um, one last thing I will say about Summer of Fear is that it does sort of end with a cliffhanger. Um, no pun intended, since most of the cars go under cliffs in this movie. And blow up um, in midair. They do. It's it's a magical time. <laughs> um, but I really, I honestly, like, I wish they would have done a sequel. 
because basically Julia um, turns renames herself into I think it's Susan Peterson. Yeah, and now she's and, British. Yeah, now she's British. She's and a governess. She's, she's a governess. Now she's going to play Mary Poppins and <laughs> take care of this tiny little baby in Beverly Hills. Is she going to seduce would, that baby? Uh oh, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, it was 1978. Things were crazy. I don't know, but I mean, that, that little baby should keep an eye on her dad, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. All bets are off. But I would have completely watched that character. I mean, maybe that's how the hand that rocks the cradle happens. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. That's exactly what it is. It, yeah. it is that thing, though. Again, if we're looking at the comparisons to something like, say, A Nightmare on Elm Street, this idea that, oh, the evil is not dead. The, yep. the tag of an ending that says, like, it's not over. Um, and in Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, that was against his will. He hated that ending. Here, obviously, he I, maybe he was also forced to go along with it here. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, this this notion that we have not vanquished the evil, that it continues to live on and, and do its harm on the world. Yeah, I would have definitely I would definitely would have gone for another round with this. Uh, it's just fun. I, you know. And I like the fact that this was sort of our first, like, real evil Julia, because we get another good evil Julia in the Hellraiser films. Good point. Yes. So we should we should start tabulating all the evil Julias in <laughs> movies. Who are some of your favorite evil Julias? Hit us up <laughs> at Craven Craven Pod. Yes. Let us know about your favorite uh, <laughs> scary Julias. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think Lee Purcell's really good in this. I think it's an interesting performance because it starts off very country bumpkin very yeah she's kind of meek yeah and then she like you know comes up as like this bombshell when she has her little makeover moment uh and then basically turns into like a walking nightmare right of, of you know where she's dripping sex everywhere and i love how like can we talk about the dress moment for a second because like one um it's just totally when so in the movie linda blair wants to make her own dress for this dance which i'm just like girl just go buy a dress like who has that time it's um, her pretty and pink moment. And, but I was like, oh, my God, this is such a pretty and pink moment because she comes out with this pink dress and it's hideous. Yes. And I don't care what you say about pretty and pink in that dress. Oh, it's a terrible dress. Andy's dress in that movie is the worst yeah. dress I've seen in an 80s movie like ever. <laughs> like that thing is hideous. They should be ashamed of themselves. Like why they would have made that dress look like that. Like, come on. Um, but I love the fact that in this movie, like Linda Blair tries it on. She's short. And petite, you know, she's she's very she's like this tiny little package. Um, she's got some real were, twisted sister hair in this movie. Oh my god, I love her hair. Big poof. <laughs> she's in Poof City. Yeah. Um, and then, but then Lee herself puts it on, who's like a foot taller, and suddenly it's like this big, gorgeous Vanna White gown. Right. And I was just like, what? Um, you know, but I love I love the dress moment. I think that's a really fun sort of touch, and I, I think it, you know, in, in in a lot of ways, it really somehow was able to capture sort of those, that insecurity that you feel when you're a teenager. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you have friends that are prettier than you or, you know, friends that, you know, are able to like date boys and, you know, things like that. Like, I think there's just, it really kind of ties into sort of those anxieties that you feel as a teenage girl, which I'm sure you know all about Patrick. I, absolutely. I still feel them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, you know, and it's, just, it's, it, I think for me, like it, it really, I don't know, it turned me back into like being like a teen girl again in a lot of ways. Um, maybe it's just because I'm just, I don't want to get anymore. I just don't want to be old anymore, I guess. Yeah. You know, um, but I think it does some really, really fun stuff. 
Um, and I really liked it. But yeah, I think Lee Purcell is pretty good in this. And I would have watched, you know, her Susan Peterson uh, go and torment <laughs> this, this this family. Summer of Fear 2. Right. Autumn maybe of Fear. Maybe, I was going to say, maybe that's how we get to the fall of Fear. Yeah, I like it. You know, because it picks up pretty quickly right after. And they got to go back to school and stuff. So. Stranger in another house. Yes. So also, um, speaking of inappropriate behavior, um, she, Lee Purcell's character really uh, rubs young Bobby a lot in this movie. Yeah. She's, there's, I'm there's, telling you, she's making moves on everyone. I know. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in this movie she didn't try to seduce. Just other than poor Pete. <laughs> yeah. Pete, who was like primed to go out with her, even though he's her cousin. Yeah, he was ready. He even says, like, yeah, she completely ignored me because she was making the moves on Mike. Yeah, which is weird because in the book, it's very much uh, she uh, she she's very much into the brother okay. in the book. Okay. So, yeah. So very interesting. Yeah. Um, although and also I would say he that uh, Peter also kind of disappears from the movie for about 25 minutes. Yeah, for sure. He's he's kind of a, a major factor in the beginning and then almost disappears from the movie completely. And then kind of shows up a little bit at the end, but not a lot. Same with Bobby, who only shows up again when she switches rooms. Yeah, like he's he's sort of there and then he's there when Jar- when Professor Jarvis falls. Right. Or yeah, has his his stroke. Right. Um, who also, speaking of soap operas, uh, was a big factor on Days of Our Lives. Oh, I did not know that. He gets the yes. end credit, so I knew he was like somebody, Something. but I didn't yeah. recognize him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Uh... McDonald Carey is his name. He gets It's not the end credit, it's the special appearance by credit. Ah, yes. So Even more that's... prestigious than the and. He's making a special appearance in your piddly little movie. Yeah, wasn't he? Uh, wasn't he in a Hitchcock movie? Uh, sure. I don't actually know. I'll pull up uh, his IMDb. He's in Shadow of a Doubt. Okay. Yes. I was like, because I'm like, when I was watching him, I'm like, oh, I think he did something with Hitchcock, but I couldn't remember. I actually have Hitchcock with a uh, question mark uh, on my my notes here. So. Nice. Yes. I also uh, have on here my other note is Nurse Duncan, which obviously was a nod to right. Lois Duncan. Right. Which was nice. Which was nice. I, I also, the other thing I appreciated is in the finale when uh, Rachel and Julia are sort of fighting, um, that Rachel grabs the camera and starts flashing at her. Mm-hmm. And like Julie's reaction is basically the same as the gremlins in the bar scene. <laughs> right, like. In the first gremlins, where she's just like, ah, ah. <laughs> so I, I like that as well. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I love the, the obvious stunt people in that scene too, but I yeah, didn't even oh, care. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> like, go get it. Go get it. Well, because you have, you need to have such distinct wigs that it becomes very obvious that they've been swapped out with stunt people. Yeah. God, you know, God bless the hair person on that movie who had to try to get a wig to match Linda Blair's <laughs> hair. Cause I think, I mean, it was impressive. Like it's very impressive. It is. I mean, there is, there's height, there's volume, there's texture <laughs> like that hair was that that hair should have had separate billing. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Also <laughs> starring Linda Blair's hair. I like it. Yeah. Another T-shirt. Just saying. Nice. Wow. We get we're, we're <laughs> lousy with T-shirt ideas. We're going to we're going to get into this merchandising business. I'll tell you what. <laughs> 
Uh, well, that's going to do it for Summer of Fear. Thank you guys very much for tuning in to another episode of Craven Craven. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Craven Craven Pod and be back with us next month when we cover Deadly Blessing. Thanks again, Heather. Thank you so much. Uh, hopefully this has uh, been fun for you and it sort of is a nice capper to, to our Summer of Fear, if you will. Very and, nice. Uh, yeah, you know, if, if nothing, I can make a good segue. <laughs> Heather promises not to bang your dad, everyone. And I promise I won't. <laughs> <laughs>